It's good to see everybody tonight. How are y'all doing? Good, how are you? I'm exhausted. If I'm perfectly honest, like, all the energy that I have right now is, is this. This is maxed. There's not enough coffee in all the world. Uh, uh, no. I refuse. I refuse. All the energy drinks we're drinking, I'm, I'm convinced that in like 40 years, everyone's hearts are going to blow out like old tires or something, and, uh, and they'll be like, it was the energy drinks all along, you know? But, you know, anyway. Uh, it's like uh, one death reference so far in my sermons. Let's see how many we get today, huh? Sounds good, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, hey, so if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to the book of First. John. It is one of the last couple of books in the Bible. So if you start in the back and work your way backwards, you'll find it quicker. You know, pro tip. And if you have your Gideon Bibles with you, uh, it was, it's page 1041. Yeah. Yeah. Ian, did you bring the Gideon? No, Jack forgot it. Way to blame shift. That was like that was like Garden of Eden chapter three right there. <laughs> this woman that you gave me, she said eat the apple. Wow. All right. Good luck, medicine. Anyway, uh, so uh, we're going to be in the book of First John chapter four, verses seven through ten, uh, and just have that open, and we'll read it in just a second. Um, we're we're you know like like I said last week, we're talking about how God's character demands response of us. If he is God, and if we think that Jesus is, right, obviously that's why we're all here. If, if that's news to you, I'm sorry that we've waited so long to tell you. But uh, if Jesus is God, then what does he require of us? And he, he actually tells us what he requires. So it's pretty cool. Like, that's very kind of him. You don't have to guess or anything. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk, talk about. We're going to talk about how God's, the way that God loves requires a response in us. And, and to kind of help uh, prep our minds for this, I want to talk about two things that I love. The first thing is this right here. This is uh, Mauro Menotes, one of the best strikers, goal scorers in the history of the Houston Dynamo, right? And this has got to be one of my favorite pictures in, in like all of soccer dome right here. Okay, so imagine this, right? We're the underdogs. We're, we've been trash all year. Then we make a late season push. We get into the playoffs, and we're going up against the feared and mighty Portland Timbers, right? They're like the best team in the country, and we beat them in their own house in the knockout round of the playoffs, right? And that's after he scored the game-winning goal, like right at the end of the game. And he just like walked over to all their supporters and did that. And he got they threw like bottles of beer and stuff at him. And it, but uh, that is my favorite photo, right? I love it. I have it saved on my phone, and every now and again, I'll just send it to my friends that are Portland fans, just because I'm that kind of friend, right? But I didn't, I didn't like always love the Houston Dynamo, right? Uh, I wasn't always into soccer. It wasn't until I was with some friends, right, that I met in Chi Alpha that I started to like soccer, right? And I'd watch the games with them, and I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. Okay, I can get into this, because before, you know, like, I played the game, but I didn't really watch the game. You know what I mean? And, uh, and so I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. And I didn't really have a team that I supported, right? And then in 2010, so when you guys were like four, I went to a, I went to a playoff game down in Houston. And there were 22,000 people packed into the stadium, right? And we're going up against New York. And then Caden, uh, uh, no, Shannon Williams makes a late 
run to the, to the back post and scores a goal, like, right in the, right at the death of the game. And, like, everybody went nuts. We're throwing, like, streamers on the field. It was amazing, right? There's people that, like, have musical instruments playing trombones and banging drums the whole game. It was incredible. And it was that moment when I saw 22,000 other people love the sport that I fell in love with this team. Does that make sense? Right? It just, it just blew my mind. I was like, oh, this is incredible. And then from that day forward, you can ask my wife, while we lived in that part of Texas, every year for our anniversary, we'd go to a Houston game, right? And it was just like we have pictures of year after year. The best time was when we sat right behind the goal and made fun of the opposition goalkeeper because he had a terrible haircut. And, uh, yeah, don't, don't go to sporting events with me. I'm not very Christian. I, I'm, I'll just be honest with you. I love screaming at people and picking on them. It's so much fun. But Bobby Shuttleworth had a terrible haircut that year. And I just want to throw that out there. Right, babe? Sure. See? See, she knows. Okay? So that, like, I was around people that loved it, right? That loved it. And I loved it, too, because of their love, right? And then, and then my, my next example is, is this right here. Okay, yeah. what, what you're looking at, what you're looking at is the robot blacksmith and the robot free shipping locked in battle with flamethrowers, okay? Yeah. And then next, the next slide right here, this yeah. is the Flipperbot Hydra show, throwing Witch Doctor 20 feet into the air, right? I am a, I'm a fanatic about battle bots. I, I'm not even ashamed. I stand before you projecting it onto a screen, right? What is BattleBot, you ask? It is the premier robot competition in the, in the world, okay? So people are dropping like $20,000 to $60,000 building these things just to destroy them. And it's all for our entertainment. And I love it, okay? When, uh, when I was in high school, when the, su the Super Bowl would be on one channel, right? And then on like PBS, they would play BattleBots, right? And if the score was terrible or the game was boring, I would flip over and watch these robots just obliterate each other for no reason. And I loved it, and I have loved it ever since, right? And so they relaunched the series a couple years ago, and I've been watching them, like, uh, to the detriment of my marriage. It's like, it's Thursday night, don't talk to me, I'm turning on BattleBots, right? Yeah. I'm such a dork, and I'm okay with it. So now what's happened is my boys, all four of my boys are into BattleBots, right? And it's like Thursday night, it's, it's man time around the couch, right? We're like eating our food and glued to the TV, watching these robots destroy themselves. Look, don't knock it till you try it. Like you just, you gotta watch. It's amazing. It's incredible, okay? And uh, it's to the point where George, our four-year-old, will wake up. He's not going to school or anything yet, right? He's four. He'll wake up in the morning, and he knows where BattleBots are. on the. So he'll just, like, go on the smart TV and, and play the show. So we'll wake up to the sounds of robots destroying each other. Like, it's, like, six in the morning. Like, wow, okay. But they're into it. They love it, right? You can walk into my house, and you ask Harold or George, what do you want to watch? And they'll be like, BattleBots! Right? Because I'm raising my children right. Amen? Yeah, amen. Right? So why did my boys, why did they fall in love with this? Besides the fact that it's objectively awesome. Look at that. Go back to the other picture. They're on fire. Look at it. It's amazing. Last season, one exploded. Like they hit the, the propane tank and the thing exploded. Anyway, it was, you're really bored and I'm sorry about that. Um, 
Actually, I'm not sorry. I think it's awesome. But why did my boys fall in love with it, right? Because I loved it, right? They saw that it, it was actually kind of cool, no matter how nerdy you may think it is, right? But, but they loved it because I loved it. Do you see that? Like, I fell in love with the Houston Dynamo because I watched other people be in love with the Houston Dynamo. My sons fell in love with the BattleBots, and some of you have now too, and I know it, because I love it, right? Amen. It's just so cool. I, we'll do a sermon series on BattleBots one year. It'll be all right. Right? So last semester we talked about how God is a loving God, right? How it is in his essential nature to want the best for you, and he has only ever willed for you to live a good and happy life. That's true, right? That's all he wants, and that's just who he is. That's just a part of his being, is to love you and want the best for you. He thinks you're pretty neat, right? He wants to live with you forever, right? We also talked about how God wants to be your friend, right? He, he created you specifically to have a loving and eternal relationship with like, you can go read, like, page one and two of the Bible, and you can get that much from it, which I think is pretty cool, right? And the reason why we're talking about God's love and God's friendship is because I think that these two attributes of his are linked, right? And they are linked by the motives, right? The motives for him befriending you and loving you are the same, one and the same. And so, because we're asking ourselves, what does God require of us? We need to ask ourselves, in light of how God acts towards us, how should we live? In light of the revelation of who He is, what is required? Amen? So, open your Bibles, if you still have them open and you're not too distracted by the amazing battle bots, to 1 John 4. I'm going to start in verse 7. And this is John writing to... Uh, to the churches around him in Turkey. And he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not, whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his amazing love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Heavenly Father, will you speak to us tonight? Lord, we love you. God, and we don't want to walk into these meetings one way and walk out the same. So Lord, will you change us tonight? Speak to us. Amen. So in case you weren't listening there, there's a word that is repeated very often in that passage of Scripture. Did you catch it? Love. Yeah, it's the word love, right? That word is actually repeated in 1 John, like almost every other verse. It's incredible, right? He uses that word over and over and over. And it's no mistake that he has been given the title, the apostle of love, right? Which sounds like some album that like Luther Vandross would put out or Barry White or something, you know what I mean? And that's a deep cut for none of you young people. In fact, according to church tradition, John 
his last sermon, like for his last sermon to his church, when he was very old, he was carried in on a stretcher and he was placed before the congregation. And his last message that he preached to his church in Ephesus was, my children, love one another. Love one another. If we do this, that is enough. My children, love one another. Love one another. If we do this, that is enough. The final message he preached to his, to his church, the final words that the Apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved, right? That guy, what was the last thing he said? Love one another. And he got this idea from Jesus at the Last Supper. We can hear the words of Jesus' message at the Last Supper echoing throughout all of John's letters. In the Last Supper, Jesus tells the 12, he says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. And Jesus' message impacted John so deeply that he repeated it as his final message. And for context, Jesus is giving this message right after everybody at the table had just had an argument about who was the lowest worth, who was lowest on the social ranking, right? Right, you remember this part, all you church kids might remember this part, but, but for those of you that didn't grow up in church, what was happening at the time, the custom was like, before you ate, you had to wash. And, and the lowest of the low slaves were the ones that had to wash people's feet. And so they, were, they had rented a room to have the, sup, the final supper at, a Passover supper together, and the, the host of the room, the owner of the room, had placed a bowl and a towel to wash people's feet in the room, and everyone's kind of awkwardly standing around going like, I'm better than you, you go do that. Right? And they're comparing each other's value and worth. Right? And then Jesus comes in and he does it. Right? The king of kings, the lord of lords, the dude that was like, hey stars, boom, stars, right? He's like, no, I'll wash your dirty, stinky feet. You've been walking around in camel poo all day, no problem. And so the disciples have this mindset of, of Who's better than who? And then Jesus tells them to love one another as I have loved you. After having washed their feet like the lowest of the low. But what is it about this new command? This command to love one another. What is it about this command that made it the subject of John's last message? It made it a major theme of all of his writings. I don't think it's just the quantity that Jesus repeated it, because he repeats this command later in John 15. But I think it's also the quality. It's the type of love that Jesus was expressing. See, Jesus demonstrated it by washing the feet of the disciples. See, in English, we're kind of at a disadvantage, right? Because we can say the word love, and it means lots of things, right? Yeah. I love my wife. Yeah. I love bluebell ice cream, right? If I love them the same, I'm either really horribly demented or a cannibal. You know what I mean? 
We use the word love and it doesn't mean the same thing. It's kind of a terrible way to have a language work. But the Greeks, which is the Greek language, which is what the book of John, 1 John and John's gospel are written in, they have four words for love. Four different words for love, right? The first word for love is storge. And this is a love of obligation. So the way a parent would speak of loving a child, which sounds awful to me. I'm obligated to have positive feelings towards you, child. Not gonna lie, sometimes I feel like that, but not all the time, you know? Storge. The second type was eros. It was a love of, love of attraction. So this is like where we get the word erotic from, you know? It, it was definitely that kind of love. So you're attracted to somebody, you eros them. The third type is phileo, and it's a love of affection or brotherly love. It's where Philadelphia gets its name. Philadelphia, right? The city of love, the city of brotherly love. This is how you would speak of a friend. But the most rarely used Greek verb for love is agape, or agape, depending on what emphasis you put on what syllable. And agape is the word that Jesus used. And agape is the word that John uses in the passage that we just read. And agape is a love of prizing. A love of prizing, which is kind of hard for us to understand. Because we tend to think of love in terms of emotion, right? I love someone because I get butterflies on my stomach when I see them. Right, babe? <laughs> but it's this word, agape. This is the one that the Lord chose to use to express how he feels about us. So let's talk about it for a minute. See, agape is a love of prizing. That means it's a love that recognizes the value of its object. You see that? Agape is a love that recognizes the value of its object. So it means it is a love that sees something intrinsic to the object and values it. There's something about the object that elicits, elicits a response to me. For instance, like a, a gemstone is valuable because it's beautiful. There's something intrinsic about it that elicits a response to us. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Or a painting is valuable because it is rare. There's only one painting like that. So there's a certain way that we act around that painting, right? See, it's the innate value of the object that demands a responsiveness. And sometimes... We, we realize a new thing about the innate value of an object, and therefore we must change the way that we act and think about the object according to that value. Are you still with me? Okay, for example, I, I have a lot of books. Okay, I, I have a ton of books. In fact, when we moved, we had more boxes of books than we had clothes for seven human beings. Right? I'm not even ashamed. Just like I'm not ashamed of battle bots. New episode out on Thursday. Right? I have a lot of books. And, and there's actually several books that I'm willing to give away. I'll give to you. 
right? And, and I've done that a lot. Leaders here know that, right? Just about every leadership, I'm throwing books at people. And, and there's some books I, I will trust you to, to loan and to borrow that you'll read and bring back to me, hopefully, right? But there's one precious, precious book, right? This book is called The Golden Milestone, and it's by F.W. Borum, who is one of my favorite authors. And my wife bought me this book. It's a first edition printing from 1915. You don't touch that book. You don't look at the book. Don't even smell the book. You come to my house, don't even ask where it's at. You're not worthy to look at it. I treat that book with more care and regard than like a common paperback that you can buy on Amazon, right? Because there's intrinsic value. And the value of the book determines and demands how I act. Does that make sense? A book I can buy for a dollar off of Amazon, I'm going to give to you for free. But an irreplaceable book like The Golden Milestone, first edition, first printing, 1915, it's over 100 years old. You ain't touching it. Right? So you can see that, and this is true in all of our life. We do this with things all the time. That the value of the object demands that we act in a certain manner. Right? And that's how God views you. He prizes you. He prizes you. God sees you and he sees me and he sees that annoying kid that sits next to you in class is having incredible value. How do I know this? How can I say this? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How do we know that God values us? He died for us. In God's wisdom, he has deemed you and I as objects of eternal value. See, to him, you're worth giving up the throne of heaven, coming down to this tiny little dirt ball, and being misunderstood, being rejected, being betrayed, suffering and dying. The value of all of that was outweighed by you. Because he agapes you. He looks at you and says, you're worth it. He values you. Do you see how much he values you? Does that make sense to anyone? In his infinite knowledge, his infinite knowledge, he knows every single detail about your life. The things you did in the dark, the things you did in the light, the number of hairs on your head. Sometimes it's easier day by day, like if you're me and old now, he's just like minus 17, all right. He, he knows every detail about you, the good, the bad, the ugly. And in his eternal wisdom, he doesn't even make bad decisions, right? He's, not only does he know everything, but he's also, he knows how to apply that knowledge, right? Right? Intelligence is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting tomatoes in fruit salad. Amen? <laughs> so not only does God know everything, but he's also wise. He knows everything about you, and he knows how to apply that knowledge about you. 
He's not a fool. He doesn't make bad decisions. And he's deemed you far more valuable than all of heaven. Because he gave all that up and came here. And died and suffered to be near you. He loves you with a love that places your worth and value above all that he had to endure. Just to win you back. He agapes you. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that he might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Because he has loved us in this way. Because he has agape loved you. Because he has valued you and prized you above everything else in the universe. Now we see a way to love others. Because here's what all of that stacks up to me. That love is a choice. And not merely a feeling. And that now that we can see clearly, we can make the appropriate and correct and wise choices when it comes to loving our neighbors. Just like me seeing my friends and the you know, 22,000 other people at PNC Stadium in Houston, just like seeing them cheer for the Dynamo, helped me realize and recognize the, the value that team has. Just like my sons watching me geek out over stupid robots beating the tar out of each other. Help them see something they found valuable. In the same way, the way that Jesus loves others should help us see how we should love them. Help us recognize the value in them. Does that make sense? In the same way that he loves you, he loves that person that sits next to you in class. In the same way that he loves you, he loves that person that was mean to you while you're just doing your job at work. In the same way that he loves you and died for you, he loves that person that you hate. He died for them just the same as he died for you. Because of how Jesus loves our neighbors, we too can see their value and worth in truth and reality. And the beauty of this is that it no longer, our love for them no longer becomes tied to our feelings or their actions or our circumstances, but it is illuminated by his actions. G.K. Chesterton, who's one of our favorite authors around here, said, something must be loved before it becomes lovable. And I found this to be true. Because Jesus loved the unlovable, now we are free to love them as well. And this was the secret of the early church. 
Some of you may, may be new to this Jesus thing, but the early years of the church, the church was under persecution, especially in the first century. About 30 years after Jesus was one of the worst persecutions. Emperor Nero would round up Christians and he'd, they'd throw them in the Colosseum and feed them to lions and let, watch whole families be torn apart by wild beasts. Or he'd want, he'd want to have an evening dinner party out in his garden, so they would round up a bunch of Christians, nail them to crosses, cover them in pitch, set them on fire, and that's how they would light their garden. And they suffered. But they loved the people that did it to them. How? How do you love somebody that treats you like that? Well, it's because their love for the world around them was not dependent on how that world around them thought about them or acted towards them or treated them. Their love for them was dependent on how God thought and felt about the world around them. They saw the deep and eternal value that God placed on every human being they encountered. And they conquered Rome by loving it like God does. By deeming them worth every cost. And do you see the freedom in this? Do you understand how freeing this is for us? No longer do we have to be constrained by other people. It doesn't matter what they do or say. It doesn't matter how we feel or think. We can know that they are worth loving because God overcame death, hell, and the grave because they're worth it. They are worth loving because God has declared them so, just like he declared you to be worth it. This love, the love of prizing, agape love, is what changes the world. This is the love that Dr. Martin Luther King spoke of when he said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Just like the early church changed their persecutors into their brothers. Abraham Lincoln once said, do I not destroy my enemies by making them my friends? It is this love that looks at somebody and says, no matter what you do to me, no matter what you've done to me, no matter how you treat me, I will love you. I will prize you. I will value you. Do you see that? And if we have truly understood the depth and the width and the intensity of the love of God, we cannot be the same. This love, it, it changes eternities. It moves mountains. And we are capable of loving others because he first loved, loved us. He showed us how much people are worth. And what does God require of us? To love them the same. My prayer and hope is that Chi Alpha, as a community, as a body, as an organization on campus, 
would be a people that was marked by this love. By this unique and demanding requirement that God has placed upon us to love the world as he has loved it. I pray that we would be a people that loves people and befriends others simply because they're worth it. No matter if they ever come to your small group, no matter if they ever start walking with God, no matter what they do or say about you, that we would love them because they're worth it. Doesn't that sound like who you want to be? Regardless of how the other responds or acts, independent of what can be gained or lost, I pray that we would live out a deep, abiding love of prizing for our campus. Yeah. Yeah. 